This episode of Mountain Meister is sponsored by Wigwam Socks. They're a 110-year-old company that is committed to knitting the finest quality socks that money can buy right here in the USA. For 25% off of pure American comfort, go to wigwam.com and use the code MEISTER at checkout. Picture this. This winter, you're going to get the opportunity to ski or ride any peak in the entire world. You get to pick it. You have an unlimited budget. And we will provide any and all resources that you need to get to the top of that mountain. Sounds nice, right? The thing is, that opportunity is already there. Ever since I realized that the helicopters and the snowmobiles really can only go to about 5% of the range. You know, the best riding of your life can be done on foot. You just got to sleep in a tent and wake up really early. Hello there. This is Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. And on the other end, the mind that we'll be exploring today belongs to Jeremy Jones. Hello, Jeremy, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. If you don't know Jeremy, he's a professional snowboarder and the founder of Jones Snowboards, also the founder of Protect Our Winters. He's widely regarded as one of the best free riders in the world. He's established hundreds of first ascents on some of the steepest, deepest, and biggest terrain out there. He accesses this terrain in a human-powered approach, which allows him to reach peaks that helicopters can't. Jeremy, one would probably be surprised after all this high talk to figure out that you are from a low place, Cape Cod, Mass., actually not far from the Mountain Meister headquarters. Yeah, I actually um, came to find out that I, I think I grew up in one of the highest points of Cape Cod. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> at a whopping um, 200 feet above sea level on uh, Shoe Flying Hill Road, so one of the few hills on Cape Cod, and uh, been kind of going higher ever since then. <laughs> Good point. It's probably inspiring for a lot of the Flatlanders to hear that this legendary snowboarder grew up on the cape how, how did you discover snowboarding well it was twofold one um i just really got hooked in into skateboarding and surfing i mean i didn't surfing i i grew up in the middle of the cape so there it was 45 minutes away to surf so i didn't surf a ton had no one older to kind of drive me or what have you or teach me or direct me but just fell in love with that whole sideways lifestyle. Um, at the same time, started going to Vermont um, with my parents. Were fell in love with Vermont and getting off the Cape on the you know the weekends. Um, and my grandfather was living up there, and they really got the mountain bug and dragged us along. And then um, I naturally kind of fell in love with the mountains, like just seeing Vermont and this whole different lifestyle. And at first it was on skis, but I was always on skis going, man, I want to be sideways on this. <laughs> we just loved it so much. And it wasn't like it didn't need to be powder. We almost like the, the icy 
really cold days. I remember hiding like our frostbite from the lifties. So we, they'd let us on the lift and just loved the elements, loved the lifestyle. And, um, it hooked us pretty early on. So I'm an East coaster and I've said many times on this show, actually, that I think when you grow up learning on the crap conditions in the East, it makes you a better skier or snowboarder. Uh, since you're pretty much the best snowboarder out there, can can you confirm this for me? Um, well, I can, you know, two things. One, I, I feel super grateful that I started um, at sea level and slowly worked my way up into bigger and bigger mountains, and I got to experience every new thing along the way from just, seeing Vermont from the first time I saw Tuckerman's was like this life-changing experience and so on. And I just kept having those experiences all the way up to the Himalayas. Um, and then from a um, skill set level, what people don't realize is when you go to these, like a Sugarloaf or a Stowe, um, you're dealing with big vertical um, accessed off of, high speed quads uh you know at the time when i started they didn't have that but point being is you get really long um sustained runs that you need to be on it top to bottom and you build strong legs and that's a base that you can take anywhere in the world yeah absolutely do you do you remember the first time that you picked up a snowboard because this was pretty early on right i mean this is back when snowboarding was basically getting founded yeah, I mean, I feel grateful. I was nine years old, um, and I got into the sport pre-high backs um, and P-Tex bases and metal edges. Uh, and I I do remember the first place I saw a snowboard um, was at Shaw's General Store in Vermont in the basement. And that immediately, like, that's all I wanted for Christmas, thankfully. <laughs> Santa got my note and got the uh, board for Christmas. And the early days, I remember um, finding all these little powder shots that I, you know, still know exactly where they are today. And and we could, my brothers and I, we could ride powder um, really kind of out of the gate, a pretty natural deal to turn a snowboard in powder. But hard pack was elusive. I never saw anyone snowboard in hard snow. I never, I mean, besides my brothers and my cousin, um, there was no, no one to like give us a pointer. And I do remember, um, like the exact moment and place that I made my first real turns on hard snow. And I, I remember it because that, that was really frustrating. It, took, it probably took me three years to link turns on hard snow and wow. hundreds of crashes. And um, and I, I was at the peak of frustration when I finally um, put it together. And that was, you know, what I would say is probably my first white moment that I've ever had. Uh, did Was that the point when you realized that you wanted to do this for the rest of your life? Um, you know, when you're young, that's tough to, um, like I didn't then formulate this huge plan. I mean, for one thing, there was really no such thing as pro snowboarding at that time. Um, 
And so the thought of like, I want to be a pro snowboarder was, you know, there's no such thing. Uh, but I, for you know, there's no question that I think at that moment in time, um, I had already, you know, the mountains were working its magic on me. Um, and when that happened, it was just like the, Skis went away for good. All these other, I was really into hockey, all these other sports. Like that was the start to weeding everything out of my life, but snowboarding, skateboarding, and surfing. I'm just wondering, how how did you get to where you are now if this didn't exist when you were younger? What, What path were you following? Or I guess you weren't following a path. Little did I know the sport was about to um, say, you know, you could imagine it being a J-curve and there hadn't been metal edges and P-Techs and stuff and there'd been rudimentary snowboards for probably 10 years that, you know, I'd never seen them because there's no magazines or what have you. And um, But the sport, from the time when I made that first turn, um, I mean, that was that point about 85, um, you know, the first hard pack turn 82 was when I first got on a snowboard. Um, you know, it was God, you fast forward to, uh, 98 and it's in the Olympics. I mean, it was like a meaty, it just went to the moon, but, um, you know, at first it was just, Oh, I heard there was a local contest, um, at Sugarbush, And at 14, I went to that and won the you know the junior division of of that event and kind of just kept winning locally and um and the sport was really exploding locally in New England meaning if you were um if you won they had a pro division um if you won the pro division in New England you were then um you'd get picked up by Burton you'd be on your way to travel in the world. You spent most of that time racing as a child and then at some point switched to big mountain. What inspired the change? The first, say, eight years of my, or five to eight years of my snowboarding was all about riding the whole mountain, doing everything in Vermont. And um, racing got me to these uh, these amazing mountains out west and eventually to Europe. And I'd be there racing, but always in I, I was always a free rider meaning as soon as the race was done i'd grab my board i it was always deep down in my blood and, and kind of racing was my means to to see the world but um the free rider never left me you're listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore it's called mountain meister if you'd like to check out the full library of over 150 episodes go to mtnmeister.com that's our website or check us out on itunes or your favorite podcast platform so i guess the story really of recent is that originally you accessed all these big peaks by a helicopter you made incredible films your brothers uh founded tgr teton gravity research yeah and then at some point there was a switch from accessing these by helicopter to choosing to access them by a human powered approach why well you know i'm always um even when i was using a helicopter bunch it was still kind of hiking off of resorts all winter long and then i'd go to alaska in april and use a helicopter 
So I was pretty versed at kind of the one to three hour hike stuff and I really enjoyed it. Um, and the switch from moving away from helicopters to foot power to something that I had been wanting to do ever since I realized that the helicopters and the snowmobiles really can only go to about 5% of the range. So I was starting to do these winter camping trips and for two years, I think it was, I started the winter going, all right, my goal this year is I want to go do an extended winter camping trip in Alaska or some anywhere really. Um, and it, I just, I would find myself in the same grind, the whether it was like sunny, clear day coming in Tahoe and talking to the film crew and they're like, dude, that's going to be one sunny day. We got to, mm-hmm. we're taking sleds. We got to, you know, who knows? We got to get as much riding as possible. And then the same thing with the helicopter. So I was kind of forcing the issue on the side and in doing so, I was doing some bigger stuff away from cameras and I was getting so much enjoyment out of it. I had then I felt like I had unlocked this um, and and found this whole new world where of, of unridden unknowns and at a time when we were really riding the same zones with helicopters and snowmobiles and um, so there was that factor I realized how much the highs I was getting on these foot powered uh, missions were surpassing anything I was doing with a helicopter and a snowmobile and then. I felt like I was also um, selling this dream of like, hey, become famous and go around the world with a helicopter and and snowboard in these films. And it was a dream that was very unattainable. You know, part of it is I wanted to inspire people and say, hey, you know, the best riding of your life can be done on foot. You just got to sleep in a tent and wake up really early. Mm-hmm. Well, you said those highs that you feel when you're doing the human-powered approach – can you describe those in more detail? Is that during the climb? So with a, um, you know, a, a foot-powered mission, it generally um, you're waking up in your tent at 2 to 4 in the morning. So climbing out into the cold and the dark, there's a ton of fear. When your alarm goes off at 2 in the morning, you're like kicking yourself going, you know, why did I make this crazy plan to walk, climb out of this warm sleeping bag, walk into this dangerous place and climb up this mountain? Um, so there's a ton of um, doubt and fear. You slowly get moving. Um, you're generally, you know, halfway up or, you know, pretty high in, into the mountains and into your day. When the sun comes up, um, which is this incredible feeling to be, you know, to watch the go from pitch black to slowly into light. That's an uplifting deal, but you have to link up all these, um, all these little things have to go right uh, to get to the top, just to be able to strap in. So by the time you uh, are strapped in, you have overcome a ton of unknowns that, you know, the whole time I'm on a climb, I'm looking for reasons to turn around and it's more of, um, uh, um, you know, I kind of go a hundred feet or whatever, you know, section to section and go, wow, I can't believe it, but this is safe. I'm going to keep going. And it's, uh, you just keep, um, moving up. And it's like the, every time you realize the sections climbable, it's a very uplifting, 
Uh, but you get on top, you have these huge endorphins, you know, you've overcome all this, um, these challenges along the way. And then you drop in, wind hits your face, you kind of go to this place that I can't really um, describe, but this deal where your mind and body are in total control, totally blank, but you also totally let go. So you, you know, ideally execute your line, come ripping out the bottom, this huge hit of uh, adrenaline hits you. And in this, it's kind of this complete and this level of contentness that you get from that is, you know, there's a few times in my life that I'm that content after a mission like that. And it's, you basically go through every emotion in life in this eight to 12 hour um, day. Hmm. Those emotions that you described on the way down, do you feel those uh, to that extent when you access it by a helicopter? No, I mean, you, there's much less meaning um, to a helicopter access line, meaning, as you said at the opener, you know, I've had hundreds of first descents. To me, like that, all that helicopter stuff was practice for what I'm doing now. Um, I consider what I've done over the last seven or eight years, that's, you know, that's kind of the, the area where I've taken the baton from the past generation of chargers and I've moved it a teeny bit. Um, and, you know, up until this foot powered stuff, I think I was kind of, you know, I was at a very high level um, and I had maybe nudged the, the sport, sport a teeny bit, but I didn't really take a step forward you know, as a, you know, help snowboarding take a step forward until I did the, mm-hmm. the uh, foot-powered stuff. There's a concept in psychology called contra-freeloading. So, freeloading. Yeah. Have you heard of this before? No, that's a radical word. Right? So, they did it, I think, with mice and cats, and I think it's being worked on with humans, or at least studies are, but... It means, you know, typically we think that humans behave in a way where we maximize our utility by minimizing effort, uh, but maybe that's not quite how we work. By putting forth a lot of effort into something, we actually uh, find more reward out of that. Yeah, for sure. So it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've had some great days in a helicopter, but it's foot-powered stuff that mm-hmm. I've been able to do, you know, that just has a lot more meaning to me yeah absolutely is there a reason that you like to push it to the limit i mean how steep are these things 50 60 degrees yeah i mean they for sure some of them get into you know 50 low 60 degree um stuff and no you know i don't set out and go man let's go out and just be on like take it to the limit and if we don't it's not going to be a good day. Um, I think a lot of what happens is I come across a mountain that just rocks my world and makes my palms sweat and knees shake and go, I, you know, I need to figure out how to ride that thing. And what happens is um, sometimes to, to ride that mountain, you have to deal with some hazards to get to the sweet spot on that mountain or there's um you know there's some uh 
some riskier sections involved um, to it, but it's, yeah, I don't look and go, oh, that, I mean, sometimes that mountain that rocks my world, like, it doesn't need to be 50 degrees and edge of the world. Right. A lot of times it is. Well, that's at least the footage that I'm seeing. It sure looks like it, but I'm sure that's a a product of what the media likes to put out there. Um, And I'm part of the media. So let's talk about this really extreme terrain. (laughs) How do you draw the line of when to turn around or when to go on? How do you make that decision? Well, it's really important to go, and the thing is with with the mountains, um, and I wish it was not this way, but some of the most serious stuff that I have been involved with in the mountains, the most where people have almost died, has been in what I would call um, intermediate backcountry terrain. Um, so the important thing with the mountains is for me to give uh, respect to this you know, basically blue square backcountry run that I give to the super fluted 60 degree edge of the world line. And it's a cocktail of different, different things. But, um, for me, you know, really trying to get in tune with the mountains and, um, listen to the signs and be present, be humble, be in the right space where, I can be so mentally invested into something, meaning I put in tons of work, I'm sleeping at the base of a line for weeks on end, and we're building up to it, and then the wind switches, the sun heats it, what have you, and and I can go from like letting nothing get in the way of climbing this thing to, all right, that's no longer safe, and turning my back um, without a care in the world, and that little dance is kind of the um you know that mental dance is the is the crux of it all um for you know the mental side of what i do it seems like you're really good at that dance considering you're still alive well you know unfortunately you know i definitely have been um good at it but it doesn't mean anything the next time i go into the mountains right it's just one one bad call erases a lifetime of good calls. And unfortunately, there's not a point where you go, cool, I got it all figured out and I made it through and now I'm out of the danger zone. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's just unfortunately not the case with the mountains. Are, are you lucky to be alive? Am I lucky to be alive? I mean, you know, the thing with avalanches is you never know, um, you know, how close you really were. Um so, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that I have, um, I have a system that up until this point has treated me well in the mountains. Um, there's stuff I did at 23 that I probably wouldn't do today, but, uh, I mean, I've lost friends at my home resort, uh, underneath the chairlift. So it's, it's some extent we're all lucky to be alive. What is your response to the folks who say, you know, you have a wife and kids, like you're selfish for doing this kind of stuff. I mean, I understand their perspective and I think being reckless and taking stupid risks is, um, is definitely disrespectful and, and, and stupid. But I do feel like if you, if you just, you know, stop going into the wild places and live in that padded room, I think it's a, 
pretty horrible um, message to show to your kids. Um, and it's pretty, you know, I think that I would, I, that would probably lead me to some other, I, I just wouldn't, you know, at, at what point is life worth living? Um, so I, I think it's, it's kind of that mix of like, Still living life, but not being stupid about it. Mm-hmm. It seems like that would be a decision that you have to contemplate a lot in your life, in your lifestyle. Like, what do I take this to the next level or do I not? Because you're pushing the limits. Yeah, I mean, it, but again, it, you know, it, it, you go back to, as I said earlier, some of the, or I shouldn't say some of, hands down, the most the heaviest life-threatening things I have seen is in terrain that I hopefully will be walking in when I'm 70 years old. Mm -hmm. I was not filming. I was not doing this great act of a big stunt for the cameras. I was out, you know, just being a, a mellow backcountry snowboarder. So then I have to ask myself, am I going to stop going into the backcountry? and then take it another notch. Uh, you know, I've lost more friends in my ski area, um, not filming, not doing pro stunts than I have in the backcountry in my home range. So then do I stop going on the mountain? Um, and, or do I stop riding my bike? I just had a friend had a horrible accident on a mountain bike and that, you know, and not jumping, doing everyday mountain biking. So at what point, um, you know, I, I wish it was simpler and I could go, hey, I'm done with 60-degree stuff, but I've had better luck on 60-degree stuff than 35-degree stuff. You bring up a really good point there, and I think it comes down to people maybe being complacent uh, when they think the terrain is easier. Do you think that's what it's a result of? Yeah, I think the attention that I give to a 60-degree spine wall could – um, be, you know, be less of intermediate terrain or, um, you know, when we're, what, I mean, anyone, the mountain, but it's just, it's always blown me away with mountain biking, how fast we fly by trees. Um, and we do these long rides and you get tired and sloppy and then same deal at a ski resort. I mean, we, you know, just your general skier is all of us are, cranking down the mountain 10 20 runs a day you get a little loose and i mean you know it's just a um you know i hate to say it but it's there's there's danger out there everywhere and uh it's not i feel like there you know whenever anything happens in the mountains it's like oh these pros and they're taking huge risks but you know there's a lot there was i don't know 34 avalanche deaths last year and I don't know, maybe maybe two of them were in film-worthy terrain. Wow. I, you know, I don't know the exact stats, but, you know, backcountry skiers um, have this deal of like, oh, I, you know, I'm not doing the movie stuff, and so I'm safe, and that's not the case at all, unfortunately. More Mountain Meister coming up in a bit, but first, you should know that Wigwam, our sponsor – since 1905, has been combining comfort, performance, style, and long wear life into its socks. As an authentic American and family-owned company, Wigwam takes pride in its made-in-the-USA products. 
This drives an uncompromising commitment to quality, delivering nothing but pure American comfort. To see what four generations of craftsmanship feels like on your feet and 25% off, go to wigwam.com and use the code MEISTER at checkout. You know, the two things I never wanted to do as a snowboarder was uh, make my own film and start my own snowboard company. And I did both of those in a two-month period with very little forethought. But the act of me, um, say, designing and and developing product is something that's very natural. And I've been, I was really fortunate. Um, I was with Rosignol for 19 years and 12 of those years um, I was developing product with them. Hmm. Uh, so once I kind of, um, figured out all the pieces in a manner where I could just focus on developing of the product and the messaging of the, the brand and kind of built a team, um, of people that, you know, highlighted each other's, um, high points, it, um, you know, that's what kind of got me jump, you know, got me off that cliff and um, to start a company, uh, which was actually started at the heart of the, um, you know, it was 2009, right. I think it was. At the bottom. Uh, yeah, at the bottom, mm-hmm. which is actually a really good time to start a company. Right. Did Rosignol not want to make split boards? You know, at the time, uh, Rosignol come into some uh, some financial uh, stress and restructuring. They're actually, uh, it was Quicksilver who just filed bankruptcy, and they're still referring to this Rosignol deal, which is crazy. But because um, Quicksilver owned Rosignol, but uh, they were not interested in making split boards. I talked to a couple brands out there who were interested in working with me. They were all really clear that they were not going to make split boards. Um, and at that point, about 70% of my snowboarding was on a split board. I was sick of cutting them in half. Um, I felt <laughs> like they, you know, I used to take n- normal snowboards, cut them in half, turn them into split boards. And I felt like, um, you know, I really, I needed a split board that, had the attention that say companies gave to their freestyle boards. And, um, that's really the start of Jones, even though, you know, we, we make a full spectrum of snowboards. It was, um, there was some new stuff that I, and I was getting sick of trying to sell my ideas, um, you know, that were not traditional ideas, some of them, uh, and so I started it, and the first splitboard we made, um, which is still, which is probably the number one splitboard in the world, is um, the solution is what I named it, and uh, I named it because I, I really needed better equipment uh, to be able to do what I wanted to do with my snowboarding. Mm-hmm. So, how many of those companies that you originally talked to are now making splitboards when they refused to before? They are all making. Split They're boards. all making split boards. They're all, yeah. Okay. Uh, finally, uh, I want to talk about protect our winters. You're the the founder of that nonprofit, uh, which is gaining a lot of momentum, and uh, you're doing a lot of work in Washington too. Can you talk about what protect our winters is? Yeah. So um, I started it in 2007. Um, 
was kind of first had the idea in 2005, but was scared to start it um, <laughs> for multiple reasons. But uh, what are those reasons that you were scared to start this? You you told me earlier that you're snowboarding down 60 degree slopes. Why were you scared <laughs> to start a nonprofit? Um, primarily just like, who am I to start a nonprofit, uh, focused on the environment? I had no experience on, you know, formal experience on any of that. Um, and you know, so I guess there was a lot of fear with, with that. Um, but I started, I knew from the get go, uh, for one, I knew I had, um, connections that I could bring something to the table, get this thing off the ground to do it. I would need um, it not to be a Jeremy Jones foundation, uh, but be embraced by the industry. I felt like the snow sports industry, um, needed a unified front to fight climate change. And that's the goal of protect our winners. We do it through a variety of different ways. Uh, but I'm, you know, thankful to say, you know, at this point I am, still very instrumental in the organization, but I'm one of say, you know, 30 people that put a lot of energy into it. Then not to say, you know, we have a very small staff of two and a half people, but, um, we have a lot of people that, that, you know, put a lot of energy into it. Mm -hmm. You can find out more about PAL, protect our winters, protect our winters.org. You can get involved there, uh, learn about the organization, the final question, who do you want to hear next on the show? You're today's Mountain Meister. Who's the next one? You know, I think it would be interesting to um, hear from, you know, it seems like you talked to a lot of people that are at the peak of their career. And um, one of the guys that I've been snowboarding a ton with, this kid, Jimmy Goodman, uh, he grew up in New Jersey. And he's... Um, very talented, one of the most diverse snowboarders from rails to charging lines to all night pushes into the far reaches of the Sierra. And um, it's a really interesting time in snowboarding right now. It's very hard for these kids coming up uh, to make it. And, uh, you know, Jimmy's my one of my main riding partners these days and, and um, kind of at the start of what will hopefully be a long career as a snowboarder uh and so yeah kind of get get the other end of the spectrum i like it keep an ear out for jimmy on a future episode of mountain meister jeremy wouldn't it be interesting to hear an interview that you had 20 years ago to see how your perspective has changed that would be very interesting <laughs> i i go back and listen to the old podcast episodes sometimes and i'm a little embarrassed by myself so yeah, I would probably struggle through um, that. That would be hard to listen to <laughs> myself then. But I, you know, the one thing that has changed or that hasn't changed, um, which I think is why I'm still in it, is just this um, hunger and love, you know, deep rooted love of snowboarding. And I've always said, you know, without the hunger, you, you don't have any of this. And um, when, you know, when the hunger goes away, I go away and, um, you know, it, it's crazy to say, but it's, it's, I'm as obsessed with snowboarding now as I was 20 years ago. And, um, and, you know, that's what's getting me out there. Very inspirational to hear your passion. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for joining us. For you, the Meister fan, check out more 
at mtnmeister.com on Jeremy's Meister profile page. We'll have links and all that good stuff there. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. All right, have a good day. That was Jeremy Jones, professional snowboarder and splitboarding pioneer. Thanks, Jeremy, for joining us. Thank you, Meister fans, for listening to today's episode. Don't forget 25% off of Wigwam Socks with Meister at checkout. You can find that and all our other deals on our website, mtnmeister.com. If you'd like to support us beyond supporting our supporters... Go to the support page on our website. You can buy a shout-out on this show. You can buy our play director package. You can even buy me a beer. And with the winter coming up, you can upgrade to IPA. Not that you can't drink IPAs in the summer, but you know what I'm saying, even though I don't really know what I'm saying. Anyway, enjoy the, doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to this podcast. I'm the host of it. My name is Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister.